we, Pat uh, preached brilliantly last week as the angel has kind of found, angel of the Lord has come and appeared to Gideon. He's, he's hiding in a wine press because the Midianites have completely oppressed God's people. They're all sort of cowering in clefts and caves and keeping out of sight. Midian's powerful people overrunning Israel. But in the midst of that, um, the angel of the Lord has come to this uh, relatively, in human terms, insignificant character, Gideon, and has spoken prophetically into his life. We'll pick it up, verse 12, top of page 237. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. Let's pause there. And a word of prayer. Father, we rely on you and your spirit to illuminate this passage of scripture, this peace in the story. Teach us, encourage us, root us, Lord, in our knowledge and love of you. That we, like Gideon, might live up to the names you give us, mighty warrior. That we might go in the strength that we have and honor your name in our places of work and homes, streets, communities, the place you give us to be. And all this, Lord, because we want you to look good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was, um, last Thursday morning, I was at Burning Man. Um, just all you men here, uh, fortnightly at St. Michael's Chester Square. Uh, Bible teaching of the highest quality. And then in small groups, a little bit of digestion, sort of chewing over that and, and prayer. And this last Thursday, the speaker was Jonathan Aitken. And I realized that maybe for a number of you, you've got no idea who Jonathan Aitken was. But for those of us of a certain vintage, we'll remember he was a kind of rising star in, the, in the, the Tory government back in the day. 
I think under Thatcher and, and John Major. Uh, he was a cabinet minister. I think he had um, sort of portfolios with defence and uh, with the treasury as well. Eton educated, Oxbridge, a kind of rising scar, a gilded CV. And um, rather like Icarus, and by his own admission, um, he, his pride took him too far and uh, he was eventually uh, convicted for perjury and spent 18 months at Her Majesty's pleasure in Belmarsh prison. It was quite a fall from grace. One minute he was kind of headline news as a you know, rising young star. He was maybe just a, a step or two away from being um, a conservative leader, maybe even prime minister. And within 18 months, boom, he'd lost everything. His life, wife had left him, he lost his home, he was kind of bankrupted. Uh, and there he was slopping out the bins in, uh, in Belmarsh prison. And the thing that struck me about the way in which he spoke uh, on Thursday, I, I can't, if I'm honest, I can't really remember much of what he said. Um, it, was, it was the manner in which he said it. And it was the power. It was the power of his words. And not least when he referred on a number of occasions, because there was, it was quite a lot of testimony in what he said, when he, when he referred to his folly, to his pride, to his sheer ego, and how he'd been so foolish. I thought, gosh, there's a, there's a strange freedom in a, in a, I guess he's in his 70s now perhaps, in a 70-year-old man, to be able to say, I'd be, I was so foolish. I should add in the story, in case you weren't aware, that during the, the sort of tumble from grace, uh, one or two Christians came alongside him, uh, he did an Alpha course, and uh, it was a process, he would say. But he came to living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he could testify to that. Well, it's not me. Amazing grace. He would really say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And as I cycled back, and I spent m most of that day thinking, goodness, I, I feel like I've been impacted. Not, not by Jonathan Aitken per se, and not by anything that he said per se, but by the power of his humility. Strength in weakness. How? How, how can I be, how can, is one so impacted powerfully from a position of stated weakness? It, and it, it reminded me of, of Gideon, the, the guy we're, we're, we're dealing with here, we're, we're just uh, engaging with here. When the Lord turns to him and says, mighty warrior, a, a, a name we might suppose of power, of influence. And he says, well, what do you mean? I'm, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, verse 15. I'm the least in my family. I'm, I'm weak. How can I be powerful? How can I be strong? Uh, it's great, Hannah came up with that kind of prophetic sense, just had the courage to kind of sing out that prophetic song. Uh, you know, when, when I'm feeling weak, waves are washing over me, it's your grace, your power that keeps me strong. Uh, for Hannah's, uh, the other Hannah, this is obviously evening for Hannah's, but that, that word of the, the kind of dead carcass raised to new life. How? How, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm feeling weak, when I'm feeling insignificant, how can I be strong? How can, more accurately, can the Lord be powerful, strong through me? And I want to look at how it's possible in Gideon's life. I want to see what's, what's behind that. That's the kind of little Bible study we'll do. We're going to go back to Abram and see God's interaction with Abram before he became Abraham and see what is actually the, the kind of one of the significant undercurrents of the whole of the Bible. But just, just look, at, look with me, if you will, um, at this little uh, section here. 
Um, in fact, let's go from when the angel, verse 11, you see the angel of the Lord came. Lord, capital letters. So we know, we're in, the readers are in. This is, this is kind of God in the form of an angel. And verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, etc. Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord. It's, it's lowercase. So Gideon doesn't recognize the angel of the Lord. In fact, in other uh, translations it says, pardon me, sir. He just recognizes him as a sort of, you know, a man of note. But not the Lord. But... Um, Verse 14, the Lord turned to him. So the, the writer wants us to know this is God through the angel. Pardon me, my Lord, verse 15, still lowercase. No, Gideon doesn't get it. So here's God speaking to Gideon through an angel, but Gideon doesn't recognize that. He, he's kind of being stirred by what the guy's saying. A mighty warrior going to save Midian, uh, save Israel from the Midianites. Yeah, but how? Because you know, hasn't God promised all these things? It's not really happening. So it's kind of stirring stuff. Pat covered this last week. The Lord answered, I'll be with you, verse 16. And then verse 17, and, and Gideon's beginning to get it. It's kind of one of those things, you know, the, the kind of stirring and the prompting. And Gideon's going, oh, wait a minute. I, I think I know what's going on here. And so you see verse 17 says, Gideon replied, if now I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. In other words, this isn't just a kind of some gent who's walked by or some... You know, prophetic person Lord if this is you through this person and now Gideon's beginning to talk not to the person not to the angel but to the Lord if this is you Lord really you and I'm not kind of making this up I'm not a wish fulfillment then give me a sign please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you and the Lord see the Lord knows that Gideon knows what's going on he says ah oh, great he's got it so the Lord says yeah okay I'll wait for you yeah, I've been time take your time which he does, because actually if you do the, the math, an ether of flour is about 16 kilograms of flour. And given that the Midianites are kind of raiding Israel, that's probably been quite hard to get hold of. So it takes quite a bit of time. He gets a goat and uh, some flour. And, and this is the weird bit, isn't it? He kind of makes a little makeshift offering and brings them to the angel of the Lord. And the angel there, verse 20, takes the meat, the unleavened bread, places them on the rock, and uh, he pours out the broth. And then with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire flares up and consumes the meat and the bread. And then boom, he's gone. And what, what's going on? That's a bit weird, isn't it? I'm sort of thinking, mm, yeah, I knew the Bible was weird. You just let it have its little idiosyncrasies and let's move on to some stuff I understand. But actually, this is crucial. This is absolutely crucial. If we're to understand how we're going to live for God powerfully, influentially, in ways that will make a lasting impact where he calls us to be, in our offices, and in our teams, and in our, the relationships that we have, in the homes that we live in, this is absolutely crucial that we understand this. What's going on here is an enactment, a remembrance of covenant and covenant is the way in which human beings connect with and know and know that they know God and in our human sphere we don't really have a, a kind of equivalence for there's, there's no other sort of category really for covenant in most of our human relationships we tend to live by contract I'll come on to that in a minute but the language of covenant is both love and law. It's love and intimacy. 
You, you see it all the time. When, when God reminds Israel of his covenant, he talks about my people. You will be my people and I will be your God. The possessive adjective. It's, it's intimate. In much the same way as, as um, Joe, my wife, I could refer to Joe as my Joe. But if any of you others, men particularly, referred to, tried to refer to Joe as, I'd, I'd have issue with that. Just as it would be entirely inappropriate for me to address uh, any other lady as, as mine in the possess. We're in a covenant relationship, an intimate, loving relationship. And that's how God addresses his people, Israel, in, in the most intimate terms. But covenant is also law. It's sealed with an oath, and, and often there's a sign that accompanies it, like a, like a, like a visible seal. Love and law, marking out covenant as unique. It's more binding and accountable than an intimate relationship. And it's more loving and intimate than a legal relationship. It's a stunning combination of law and love. Covenant. And two people, two parties enter into covenant. In the, the, the ancient Near East and the peoples that lived in Israel's time. That's how tribes would come into agreement, form agreement. And if one tribe entered into a covenant for their own ends, exploitatively or abusively, that's what it was. It was just, that was abuse. It was kind of domination. But where two parties enter into covenant looking to give themselves to the other, hugely energizing, incredibly powerful. And God invites his people the nation of Israel, into covenant with him. You and I are invited to join in a loving and binding relationship with the God of the whole universe. Do you begin to see how if we're feeling weak, yet in covenant with God we can know ourselves to be strong? In... Um, in Deuteronomy, the covenant, but basically, if you want to understand how it is to live, live a life for God, you, it, there's a kind of axis, really. It's like the, the, the X and Y axis that goes all the way through the Bible, and the, the, uh, whichever axis, doesn't matter which. One of them is covenant, one of them is kingdom. And if you understand covenant, and you understand kingdom, covenant, slightly more, who am I, my identity, kingdom, where do I live? And if I understand who I am and where I live, I, I will be, I'll be in the slipstream of God's plans and purposes for my life in this world. And so you see, begin to see, if you understand covenant, you see it actually dotted all the way through, particularly the Old Testament. So the end of Deuteronomy, and we could just, just if you want to turn, page um, 195. And if you want just a little bit of, you know, homework, reading this week, you could just look through this. But page 195, keep a finger in 237. Page 195, and I'm, I'm only going to refer really to the, to the headings that the NIV give it. But chapter 28, blessings for obedience. See, there are kind of terms and conditions to covenant living with God. There are blessings when we live for God. And he lists, here are all the blessings. Then do you see, just over the page from verse 15, curses for disobedience. There are blessings for living within covenant. There are curses, consequences, if you like, for stepping out of covenant, breaking covenant. And that, that stands to reason, doesn't it? I mean, if, if you break covenant with God, uh, in Israel's case, turn to worship a false idol more often than not, well, in worshipping something or someone else as God, 
giving prime allegiance of your heart to anyone other than God is to undermine the covenant. And so God is rightly displeased with that. It makes sense in a sense that there are curses, consequences to breaking covenant. But you see, at the same time, if God is a God of love, of intimacy, of faithfulness, if he longs for his people, then, then how can a holy God, a loving, faithful God, bless a sinful people? There's, in a sense, there's this sort of, there's this irreconcilable tension that runs all the way through the kind of plot line of the Bible. So just back in, in Judges, and just a page or two earlier, we, we see one of a number of summations of the people at this time. Chapter 2, uh, and uh, from verse 1, in fact, I think this is, yeah, here we are. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bukim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud because they they realize they've broken covenant. There are consequences, curses, if you like, to breaking covenant. God had blessed them. Rescue out of Egypt, deliverance across the Red Sea, into the promised land. I'll drive out the existing peoples. You can have this as your home. These are the blessings. And yet you constantly turn from me. Can God ignore the sin of his people? What about his character? But can God ignore and desert his people? What about his faithfulness and his love? In other words, to put it another way, to what extent are the covenant promises of God conditional or unconditional? Now bear with me here because I'm kind of doing the background work to understanding the significance of covenant. And if we understand covenant, we'll understand how we can be powerful. That's the, how we can be strong when we're weak. That's, that's the kind of guiding question here. Okay, so is God's love conditional or unconditional? And we, we tend to come down on one or other side of that. If you read, as I, as I do, I... Um, sorry, I got... There we go. Um, I, I'm kind of just tracking the um, conversations and so on that are going on within the church uh, over same-sex marriage and that kind of thing. And you, you read, you, I read quite a lot of this stuff, and we tend to fall one way or the other. It, it tends to be that, no, well, God's love is unconditional. And, and, you know, yes, we should do the right thing, be good and so on. But if we don't, if we fall short, if we're different, then, then God will still love us anyway. His love is unconditional. And other people, whatever the issue is, it may be marriage stuff, it may be on all sorts of ethical or moral issues. How should we live? Other people will say, no, unless we're good, how can God bless us? He won't. He can't bless the people who aren't good, holy like him. His love is conditional. Which is it to be? How does God reconcile the kind of relativist position, if you like, and the moralist position? How does he reconcile those two poles? I want to show you where covenant first came to light in Scripture. It's way back in, um, in Genesis chapter 15. Turn with me, if you, if you will, just back to Genesis 15, first book of the Bible. This is with Abram. 
um, and the Sunday school this morning, they'll, they'll give you the theology on Abraham, Father Abraham, have many sons, have many sons, have Father Abraham, I am one. So that's our theology. He was the one, the original one, and all Israel's descendants from Father Abraham. Right arm, left arm, no, all that. The thing is, God has made all these promises to Abraham. So Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Your descendants are going to be more than the sands on the seashore. And Abraham goes, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. How do I know? How do I know? Where's the sign? How are you going to buy? It's all very well to promise this stuff. You can promise the world. How do I know? And uh, here we are in verse 8. Oh, Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? Oh, there we are. <laughs> how can I know that I shall gain possession of it, the land, that, and, and all the promises of uh, God? So the Lord said to him, and here, here's where covenant is first uh, explicitly uh, set out in the Bible the Lord said to him bring me a heifer a goat and a ram each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon Abram brought all these things cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other the birds however he did not cut in half then birds of prey came down on the carcasses but Abram drove them away as the sun was setting Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him just jump across to verse 17 um, across the page when the sun had set and darkness had fallen a smoking brazier ring any bells flaming torch smoking brazier a smoking brazier and with a, and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates and the land of various other peoples beginning with ending in nights That's how people, in fact the, the verb, the Hebrew word to make a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. And what, what they did was they would get an animal, uh, a ox, a bull, a goat, whatever it was, and they would slice it in two. And actually it was a pretty gruesome thing, often from head to tail, not in half, from head to tail. And the carcass, well then they literally just, as described here, they put either side, they'd kind of make a kind of corridor of blood. It was known as a corridor of blood. Blood being what gives us life. In, in ancient Near thinking, ancient Near Eastern thinking. It's the, it's the source of life. So in this corridor of blood, the lesser of the two parties making a covenant walks. And what they do, they, as they walk through in between these dead, these things that were living and are now dead, as they walk between them, what they would do effectively is enact the covenant curse. They'd effectively be saying, if I break covenant with you, may this happen to me. Now, the, the historians and, and so on of, of, of Bible times, this is how, that's how when two tribes were at war and, and one conquered the other, and instead of completely wiping them out, they said, no, well, okay, we'll make covenant with you. And the lesser one would walk through the corridor of blood and would, in cutting that covenant, would make that agreement. May this happen to me if I break covenant. Do you notice when God makes covenant with Abraham. Do you notice it's a smoking brazen, a flaming torch, the light of God that walks between the two. Abraham doesn't walk down the corridor of blood. Abraham thinks he should do that. He's the lesser of the two parties, but it's God who walks through the corridor. In other words, what God is saying here in making this covenant with Abraham, and hopefully you're beginning to make the links with what was happening with Gideon when God makes the covenant with Abraham he effectively takes the covenant curses on himself as the 
flaming torch in the darkness goes between the cut animals. God is saying, may I be torn to pieces if I break covenant. And may I be torn to pieces if you, Abram, break covenant. Abram doesn't walk down the corridor of blood. Only God does. And this covenant with Abram foreshadows the greatest and ultimate covenant enactment. We don't need to turn to the Gospels. I'm assuming there's enough of us here that know the account of the passion of Christ in that last day in his crucifixion when darkness covered the land and the glory of God is snuffed out and there is blood that is shed and a body is torn and ripped and God in Jesus on the cross takes our covenant curse the consequence of sin of breaking covenant with God is borne by God himself and we are free to form a new life-giving covenant with him as we sing in uh, that ancient hymn the modern tune God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me on the cross God loves us conditionally fulfilling the law and unconditionally fulfilling love covenant curses satisfied covenant love and faithfulness pouring out So back to Gideon, uh, page 237. Again, just a reminder of the story. God, through an angel, has come to, to Gideon. Because God doesn't want to see his people impoverished by Midian. Is there anyone with a little flicker of hope, or with a little flicker of desire, with a little flicker of, of with a dream becoming a destiny, as Pat put it last week? Is there anyone I can see? I think I can see a tiny flicker in Gideon. I'm going to go to him. Hey, mighty warrior. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Me? <laughs> yeah. And as they get in conversation, as they can hear the heart of Gideon stirring, and God, through the angel, goes, I know what I need to do here. I need to remind Gideon of covenant. I need to remind Gideon of the power that he has from me. And so Gideon gets his little makeshift thing, and the torch and the brazier, and the meat is consumed. And that's why Gideon, when he sees that, goes, Ah, oh, it's the Lord! It's the Lord! He remembers covenant. This is how Israel lived. That's how they knew themselves into being in relation with, in, to be in relationship with God. Through covenant and covenant sacrifice. But of course, what Gideon is thinking is, I'm part of Israel, and Israel has sinned. I'm the lesser party, and I've broken covenant. I'm going to die. And that's why the angel says, Peace, peace. You're not going to die. That's the extraordinary extent and depth of covenant relationship with God. He has already paid the price. He has walked through the corridor of blood. He has taken covenant curse. You are not going to die. And when the spirit of the living God 
convicts Gideon of that truth, then he begins to believe that he is mighty warrior. Then he begins to believe. There's a process, there's testing, there's also there's quite a journey for Gideon, which is actually really heartening for us. It's not like suddenly he sort of ripped open his chest and he's sort of super Gideon, and, you know, and off he goes. And it's quite a journey, his ups and downs. He's a human as well, but he's a human in covenant with a living God. Go in the strength you have, and I will be with you. You will overcome the Midianites. As I come into land, by way of application, as we think about this, we read Gideon, we're reminded of covenant, and we think about how this applies to each and every one of us. One take home that we can have absolute trust and confidence in God working in and through us. Because of covenant, we can totally trust God. Think of Gideon in his context. Overcome by the millions, the weakest in his land, humanly speaking, hopeless, mighty warrior, and he can begin to step out in that prophetic calling, that prophetic urge from, from God. You, Gideon, mighty warrior, and jumped into the end, don't want to be a spoiler for you, but army of 300 overcomes 150,000 Midianites. Go in the strength that you have. Now what are the dreams? What are the little flicker that's in your heart, in your mind? What do you long to see happen in and through you for the kingdom of God that you couldn't maybe conceive of doing in your own strength? In fact, don't try and do it in your own strength. But that in covenant with God, you could. You can totally trust him. Let's just, let's just apply that, 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 the covenant relationship. I'm in covenant relationship with, with Joe. Actually, uh, the marriage relationship is the nearest thing we have to enacting covenant. Um, two, two parties coming together to form one new entity. Not, not one lording it over the other, but each vow to the other. All that I have, I give to you. All that I am. I give to you, I share with you, within the love of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. His covenant love is the model for our covenant love. And I say to Joe, you know, I, I love you so much. How does she know? How does she know? How can she be sure that I love her? I can say to her, Joe, I'll die for you. I'd be prepared to die for you. She'll have to take that on trust because I'm still alive. She doesn't know whether I'll die for her or not. But here's the thing. In our marriage relationship with God through Christ, he, Jesus Christ the groom, we are the, the church is, is known as the bridegroom of Christ. It's you know, a clear allusion to marriage, to covenant. In our covenant relationship with God, and Jesus says, I'll die for you. And we realize he already has. He's proved his love. He's demonstrated his love. So when we think of ourselves in covenant relationship with God, we can have absolute trust that he will fulfill his side of the bargain. Wow. So when he begins to sow seeds in your heart and in your mind, when he begins to call you into a work that seems impossible, that seems insurmountable, when, when the challenges seem overwhelming, when you feel weak and you long for his power, you can know that he will grant it to you.
in his time and in his way which may not always be our time and our way but you can trust him as he calls you to live for him we're in a season here at Sandy's we, we kind of gather here a bit like sort of ships coming into a harbour and uh, kind of what we're doing here is just you know filling up the stocks and mending the sails and making sure all the ropes are all not frayed and stuff and there isn't a hole in the hull or whatever it is and we're kind of getting you know patched up and mended up but we're not we're not actually as ships we're not designed to stay in the harbour God is calling us to hoist the sail to, 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 to sort of sense the wind and to set sail in all sorts of different directions in all sorts of different ways I believe well I know it's, it's more than it's, it's born out in fact I've had in the last few weeks and months people come with a kind of a burning sense you know I, I really think that God is calling us to do this or that I, I really sense now's a time for us to step into this or to that it might be with a particular people group it might be to press into a particular ministry it might be to just to grow in the things of God more and more I'll give you one example. I won't, I won't name names, but just, um, uh, when was it? About a year ago, I, uh, there's a, a course we run, or I've run and a few times, and it's a good course, and it t it's got good teaching, and we call it Recovering Truth, Living Free. It's a kind of discipleship course. And I kind of, you know, because I can kind of abuse the platform, I'm, you know, I'm the vicar, I'm the leader, I'm here, I've got the mic, and I said, I'd like you to do this course. That's quite a powerful thing. I mean, none of you have the influence that I have in a gathering like this so I'd like you to do this course you could all sort of come up with things but that's what I said. I'd like you to do this course and we had I don't know six or seven people come and do the course which is great I love it actually a small group meant we could really you know disciple it's fantastic but I plugged in and said sorry we have flyers we have some signs and things notices yeah and we had six people come and there's a person in the, in the congregation here who's looking to do a pretty similar thing with the prophetic and uh, just been sort of chatting and praying and talking to one or two people. Do you know this person has got about 30 or 40 people who are interested in doing this course? And that's probably only half of those who, who are. And we're going to run a little course coming up. Uh, and we, we're kind of going to have to, because we haven't got space to fit it unless we do it as a whole church thing, which I don't think is quite right just yet. What I'm trying to say is that, you know, I just sort of push, push, push. But then God just, just gives someone a little vision. And it goes beyond what anyone dreams now that's one example actually I could give you about six or seven I think God is calling us as a church to, to dare to dream and what I wanted to encourage you with tonight's talk and our little story from Gideon is that when you dare to dream when you dare to dream for God when when you sense that God has placed something on your heart trust him trust him with covenant love because of all he's done to birth it and to make it into reality trust him to God be the glory. Amen.